out of my own life experience in, in public education before I came on staff at Grace Church in family ministries. If you look at your little gray sheet on the inside of the cover, it says, do you have to go into full-time Christian service to be mightily used of God in the advancement of the kingdom? And it has quotes around the full-time. And I think what it refers to there is, do you have to go into a ministry in a church full-time to really be mightily used of God? And, of course, the answer is no. But if you take the quotes away, you have to say, do you have to go into full-time Christian service without the quotes to be mightily used of God in the advance from the kingdom? The answer is yes, you do. Yes, you do. But you see, full-time Christian service doesn't really matter particularly where you are. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the attitude. It's a matter of the goals. It's the matter of dedication to the Lord and the desire to glorify Him in all aspects of your life. So, the title of the thing I'd like to talk to you about today is The Master's Missionaries in the Marketplace. The Master's Missionaries in the Marketplace. And I'm just going to use my own life, not that it's to be uh, the example or the paragon of, of what you should strive for, but I just want to use it uh, maybe so you can learn what not to do as well as what to do in this aspect of ministry in the marketplace. So we're going to talk about being in full-time ministry while working in the world. You know, I, I think there are certain perspectives you have to carry with you in this regard. And you are all in the midst, at the very fork in the road of where you're trying to make a decision of what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And some of you are sort of waffling at this point. You aren't sure what you're going to do. And some of you are being torn by those who say, well, you have to go into full-time, quote, full-time ministry in order to really serve the Lord. And some of you have a real desire and impulse to go into the world to serve and to work. And I'm just here to tell you, it really doesn't make any difference Whichever place God calls you, it's full-time ministry. It's full-time ministry. And you have to see your life sort of in a different context in order to sort of bring this off. First of all, you have to understand that each of you has your own peculiar sphere of influence. Now, by that I mean this. There is no one else in this entire world that touches the same combination of people that you touch. No one. You have a peculiar mission field that's yours and yours alone that God has called you to. Because no one else in the world touches that same combination of people. And it makes no difference whether your sphere of influence is on a foreign shore or on a church staff or whether you're a missionary in the marketplace. God has called you to full-time ministry in your sphere of influence, which is in constant flux. It's constantly changing, but it's your sphere because no one else has that same sphere of influence. You know, as I look back at my 23 years in the public school, both as a teacher, I was a teacher. I've taught kindergarten through college. So we've had the full gamut of that sort of thing. I was uh, 15 years an administrator in the public schools in Los Angeles. And I often think back in terms of my years in public education 
as a missionary in the marketplace, so to speak, with really fond memories. And I think on many occasions that my ministry there, my full-time ministry there, had much more impact and was more significant than my ministry as a as a pastor on a church staff, as great as the church is and as effectual as it is, I still look back and now I tend to be more insulated from the world, the people in my sphere of influence are sometimes separated because of my uh, position on staff. But you know, I think I always saw myself as a full-time minister in the marketplace. And I think that's an attitude that you have to gain as you tend to make your make your decisions on where you want to go from here whether it's into sports or whether it's into education or chemistry or business or into the church wherever it is it's a matter of attitude as to what kind of effect you're going to have in that place do you have a full-time ministry perspective what i'd like to do is just sort of give you a short resume of my experience in the marketplace and then coming out of that so you'll get an idea of what i'm talking about First of all, you need to know that I came from a, a broken home, and most of my teen years were spent on the street, uh, a non-Christian home. My folks worked 12 hours a day, and when I was with one or the other, I was on the street. So I really didn't know what a home was like. Uh, to me, it was just a place to go and sleep and, and fix a lunch or dinner or whatever it was. But I didn't know what home was like, and I think one of the reasons when I went to school into college, even before I became a Christian, my desire was that I might serve other girls and boys who were, had been through the same thing that I was, and I couldn't think of a better way than in the field of education. So when I went to school, I majored in physical education at Occidental College, and when I graduated, unfortunately, there were no jobs in PE in the city of Los Angeles, and we wanted to stay in this area, So, uh, and my wife was pregnant, and I had to get a job. And here I was getting out of school and there were no jobs. And then I found out that if I went another semester in a summer session, I could get an elementary credential. And there were loads of openings in elementary school. And I thought, the guy here, I devoted my life to athletics and coaching and so on and so forth. And now I have to go to elementary. So it was a big step down in my thinking. Of course, God was at work. And in between those two times, I received Christ. And I had a whole new perspective. And I was so zealous for the Lord, I thought, well, Lord, you must be directing me into the elementary field, and this is going to be my ministry. And so I approached it that way. My first job as a teacher, sort of interesting, in the San Fernando Valley many, many years ago. I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was. But you will understand it a little better when I say there were only ten elementary schools probably in the whole San Fernando Valley. And there were a lot of orange trees, and Chatsworth still had hitching posts for the horses. And uh, you said, boy, that guy is really old, isn't he? Yeah. You're right. <laughs> but in any case, it was interesting. And many of the schools were sort of bungalow schools. And I had my credential, and I'd gone to the Los Angeles City School, and they said, ah, we have a school for you out in the San Fernando Valley. And I lived way over on the other side of town, but a job was a job, and my family was hungry, and I needed to take care of them. So off I went to see this school. And of course, when you're first assigned, you have a, in your mind a vision of a great school. You know, fancy buildings and lawns and trees and so on. And I got out to this school. And here it was, a bungalow school, just a clutter of bungalows that had been set there recently on a field that had no paving and no grass. There were no trees there. 
And it was right in the midst of onion fields and run-down horse ranches. So there was my school. And so they assigned me when I got there and I met with a principal. And this was in the middle of the year. This was in January. So as I got there, she took me out to my bungalow. It was built in 1896. I kid you not. This bungalow was built in 1896. It was so old. You know, when you walked on it, it creaked. And the floor was like walking on a drum. So when the kids would walk, it was like somebody walking the beat of a drummer because it was so loud in there. So we had to stay in our seats most of the time so it would be quiet in there. And my, my bungalow was right next to a horse corral. And I can remember on those days when it got towards summer and then back in September and October, it'd get to up to 110, 120 in the classroom. And all the little guys are just sitting there. I had a third grade class. And they're all sitting there sweating. And the flies being next to this horse corral, there was this huge cloud of flies right in the middle of the room. And there were, I, I kid you not, well, maybe I do. But it was at times, it was times like I had to duck down to see the kids because there's so many flies next to this horse corral. And so all my dreams and visions of what it was going to be like were sort of shattered. But then the Lord was in my heart and motivating me. And I said, hey, we've got to do some things about this. Well, another aspect was a lot of kids went home for lunch because they lived in the neighborhood. And coming through the onion fields, the right time of season, they'd all eat onions on the way back to class, you know. So add that to the flies and the heat. And you can sort of understand this was sort of like Stalag 17 in, in some aspect. Okay. Now... The walls of this place, uh, of this bungalow, were all painted that green. You all know that green that they paint schoolrooms with. And I can still remember standing up in front of my class one day, and, and a workman came in in his coveralls, and, and uh, he said, don't let me interfere with the class. And he stood right behind me on his little ladder, and he was tapping on the walls above the chalkboard with his hammer. And, of course, you're not going to do any tenure. All the kids are watching this guy tap. And the, the strange thing was, so I decided I'd turn around and watch, too. Every time he'd hit the wall, I'd leave a hole in the wall. And he's just tapping it. And, and all you could see, and the kids were sitting there watching this, and every time he tapped, there'd be a hole in the wall. You know. And uh, pretty soon he turned around to me, and he said, uh, Why? He said, These walls are something. I said, Yeah, they're really thin, aren't they? And some of the guys said, Why? It leaves a hole every time you hit it. He says, yeah. He says, you know what? He says, if the termites ever let go hands, this whole building's going to collapse. <laughs> well, now, the sensitive teacher takes advantage of those kinds of things. And rather than worrying about the building collapse, we talked about how our lives can just be thin and shallow and there's nothing behind them. And so the kids and I had a great time in this. And I was never hesitant about talking about God and about Christ and so on. And, and I figured I'd just keep on doing that till somebody told me to stop. And so we talked about that. And then I remember, too, that I soon caught on. I don't know whether you know how this works or not, but whenever a new teacher comes into school and all the teachers have the opportunity to, to send kids to that new teacher's class, get what, guess what kids they send? You know, the problem kids and the slow learners, right? And I wasn't bright enough to know that, so I had all these kids in there, and I just thought they were a normal group of kids. And, uh, uh, and it just didn't dawn on me not having had a whole lot of experience with that level. Uh, and I can still remember the first day in the classroom. And this fat little Jewish kid, I told him to do something, and he threw himself on the floor, and he started wobbling all over the place and, and going into a kind of a fit, and his mouth was foaming, and I looked at him for a minute, and the rest of the kids, their eyes were about like this. 
And I reached down and I grabbed him by the jacket he had on and I shoved him up against the wall and I said, don't you ever do that in this classroom again. <laughs> and I set him down. And at recess, I happened to go in the office and the principal came up and said, oh, by the way, I need to tell you about one of the youngsters in your class. He has this physical disability where if there's any pressure on him, he, he tends to throw fits and foam at the mouth. So you just leave him alone and we'll get medication and so on to him. Well, I didn't have the heart to tell her how I treated this situation. But it was sort of a strange thing. He never had another fit in my class. You do a lot of things out of ignorance, you know, and that sort of thing. And then uh, there are tender moments, especially with kids. And I, I can still remember the little girl that used to come, a little cross-eyed girl. She was from a trailer court, and she used to come every morning stand on the front porch shivering of the room. And so I'd always take her in, and I'd say, why, why don't you have a jacket? She says, we can't afford a jacket. We can't afford a jacket. And so she'd come in, and we'd talk, and I'd share about the Lord with her. And it was a real tender time with that little youngster. I trust that that affects in her lives. I remember also in that same little classroom, one day, it was just the time of year in the spring, and one of the kids brought a little caterpillar, um, maybe some of you have seen, they, they, they're the kind of caterpillars that turn into morning cloak butterflies. They're sort of dark brown and they shimmer with a yellow fringe on the, on the wings. And the little caterpillar is not an attractive little black caterpillar with little yellow things on his legs. And, uh, and they, they usually feed on Chinese elm trees. And we had loads of them in the neighborhood. And so one of the little kids brought this little caterpillar in uh, and said, well, what, is, what is this? And so we talked about it, that it would eventually become a butterfly. And the kids got all excited about this little caterpillar. And the next day, three of the kids, all of my worst discipline problems, but for some reason they had a, an inclination in this direction, they all came with these big bags. You know, the grocery store bag? And, uh, and one of them came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Barshaw, what you, can you guess what I have? And I said, no, what do you have? And he opened his bag and he reached down in and he pulled out caterpillars they were crawling up his arm and dropping over his hand. This whole bag was full of, full of caterpillars. And two other kids had the same thing. We had caterpillars. If they were edible, we would have had a feast, you know. But they, it was, here are all these caterpillars. And the kids loved these caterpillars. And I said, why don't we take some of them? Oh, no, let's keep all the caterpillars. Because we're going to watch how they changed and became butterflies. So we had them all stacked all over the room and just before Easter vacation they went into their chrysalises that's which is a form of a cocoon and we, they'd even crawled up the walls there were chrysalises hanging from the walls and the chandelier everything these things were all over the room so we went away for Easter vacation We're always waiting to see the whole sequence of things I came back the first day after vacation and I opened the door and what do you suppose that room was full of Morning cloak butterflies. They were everywhere. You know, I told you about the flies. Now we had butterflies everywhere in the room. And the kids came in and they were absolutely thrilled that their caterpillars had become butterflies. And we had the opportunity to talk about having how God has built into us as caterpillars to eventually become totally changed into butterflies. And so there was a great opportunity to use the moment to teach those things that are eternal. Well, I could tell you about the playground. It had no blacktop. 
for recess, the kids threw rocks at each other. Um, <laughs> organized. It was organized. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> I started early, too, uh, as, a, as a teacher having a moment of meditation in the morning. Um, I figured I didn't have a right as a Christian to override those who didn't believe in God uh, and those who didn't believe in Christ because we had a number of Jewish kids and even some Muslim kids. But we did talk about taking the time to meditate and those who believed in God and in Christ could talk to Him. And we take that time. And we did that every morning. It was just a routine. And as I moved on to other classes, I'd always establish this little moment of meditation in the morning. We'd talk about the kids who were absent and those who would pray, would pray for them and all the things that were going on in the day. And I can remember being absent one day and, and I came back and there was a note for me from the substitute teacher who had been in there the day before. And he said, what are you doing on this note? He said, I could not start anything in this class until we had a, quote, moment of meditation. He says, what right do you have to do this with these children? And they would not let him start any teaching until they'd had their moment of meditation. Fortunately, I saw him later. It turned out he was a Christian and he was just joking with me. But he was pleased with what he saw and said he was going to practice the same thing in his classroom. Well, teaching came sort of natural to me and the kids and I had loads of fun learning. You know, that's another aspect of seeing wherever you are as a full-time, full-time ministry. I think the Christian, and we were talking in our prayer class this morning, the Christian has nothing to offer to the world unless they're filled with joy. Isn't that true? The joyless Christian has nothing to offer. I mean, your, your ministry or your missionary work is, is fruitless if you don't have joy. That's what attracts people. And we just had fun. We had science fairs and puppet shows and contests. We were always doing stuff. In fact, the kids in my class hated to miss for any reason. They'd come to school sick because they'd afraid they were going to miss something because we had such a good time together. And this, these were large classes. These were over 40 in a class. And we always tried to solve problems by considering what would most please God in any situation. When any problem came up, we brought in our accountability to Him, a vertical kind of accountability. I can still remember little Wally. He's a fat little guy in the sixth grade, and he, he had pox all over his face, and he, he's just a homely little guy. He couldn't play sports. He was a slow learner. Uh, and the kids had always rejected him and ridiculed him and so on, so he had absolutely no self-esteem whatsoever. And I remember him coming in, and I, I knew of his background, so I only gave him five of the easiest words to spell, you know, like A and 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 but and yes and that kind of thing. And here he was, a sixth grader, he was 12 years old, and uh, he couldn't get those right. So I said, hey, Wally, let's really work on this. And I got some other kids to work along, and they'd work with Wally. And and pretty soon he got to he got so he could get five words right, five words right on a spelling test on Friday. And uh, it got to be a big class celebration whenever Wally got five words right, you know. And then he started getting ten right, and then he started getting fifteen, and then twenty right, and the whole class would celebrate this. So what was happening was we had turned around a thing of ridicule. And given the little guy a sense of self-esteem, 
And his whole personality began to change. It was a marvelous thing to see. And then when they were going on to junior high, I went up and told them about this. I said, please be careful, this little guy. He's very fragile. Well, what did they do? They stuck a state speller in his hand that had 30 words of five and six syllables per week. And by the time while I was in the eighth grade, he was gone out of school and lost track of him. You know, if we don't stay sensitive and if we as Christians don't bring in the spiritual dimension into whatever area we are in the marketplace, then we really, in a very real sense, fail Christ, don't we? So we have to be sensitive to that. I also remember another boy by the name of Ben. Ben was the handsomest boy in his, handsomest person, I should say, in his whole family. It was the ugliest family I'd ever seen. This was an ugly family. And Ben was a good-looking one. And because he was so good-looking, the whole rest of the family rejected him. It was sort of a switch-on thing. In fact, it was so bad that they would lock him in the closet in their home, and then he would wet all their clothes while he was in the closet. I mean, it was that kind of tension. And, and of course, he didn't smell very good. And the kids in the class rejected him. And yet, down underneath, there was a very bright young man, but he was in constant conflict with everyone in his environment. And... Uh, and the kids wanted nothing to do. They wouldn't, didn't want to sit next to him. And he was angry at them. He was an angry young man. Very, very angry. And I remember I, I was assigned summer school. And we'd have kids coming in from all the other schools uh, for summer school. And I went to Ben. I said, hey, Ben, I'd like you to work with me this summer. Would you like to be my assistant in summer school? And he said, really? You want me? And I said, yeah, yeah, Ben, I'd, I'd really like you to do that. Oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. I said, now, there are a couple of things you have to do. I said, he said, what's that? I said, you have to wear, you have to take a bath every day. You have to wear clean underclothes and clean clothes every day. He said, but my mom won't wash my clothes. I said, well, you wash them. You wash them. Okay, I will. So Ben and I worked together all summer with kids that didn't know him. And he became one of the finest leaders I've ever seen. Boy, he was good. He had those kids whipped into shape. I mean, they would do everything that Ben said. He became, and the, the smartness began to come out, and he began to help them other, others academically. And it just was a whole new young man we saw at the end of the summer. Sent him to junior high. Within two years, he was in a mental institution, and he was diagnosed as the most dangerous young man they'd ever seen. And they had to remove him from society because they felt that he'd kill somebody if they didn't. You see, there needs to be the influence of the Christ-like attitude in the marketplace where we are. If it isn't there, if the salt isn't there, everything really goes rotten. Well, because we, God was blessing us in this ministry of teaching, I soon became a demonstration teacher, and then I became a training teacher, which was a thrill to train other teachers. They came in and made a training film for the whole city school system in our classroom. And as Russ mentioned, I was selected as a National Teacher of the Year, appeared on coast-to-coast television. All the time I was very aware that God was behind it all because I certainly didn't have those abilities to be those things. I soon went into supervision, became a vice principal in a very difficult school in Pacoima. Um, I can remember it was sort of a blackboard jungle. The previous principal and vice principal would never spank. And so the kids were afraid of nothing. If they had a fight on the playground, 
no teacher would dare uh, intervene in the fight because all the rest of the kids would start beating on the teacher. It was that kind of thing. There was no order in the classrooms. Everything was mayhem. It was the worst thing I ever seen. And seen. And both the principal and I were brand new to administration. And so the first thing we said is, well, we're going to get the kids' attention. So we whipped out this big paddle. And I kid you not, I was spanking in the beginning from 40 to 80 kids after lunch every day. And I got real good at it. I mean, you get that much practice at anything and you get good at it. And they'd bend over and boy, you could hear it crackle and they'd hop all over the place. And and soon, if I walked across the playground with that paddle in my hand, everybody ran for cover. And then, of course, once we got their attention, uh, then we began to talk with the kids and things began to change and the spanking went way down, down, down. And it was it turned into a, a neat kind of situation in many respects, although we had a lot of weak teachers there. I, I remember one teacher, his name was Mr. Pink, if that tells you anything. <laughs> And every day I sort of had a ritual. I'd go by Mr. Pink's classroom after lunch. And there'd be one or two kids there. And I'd say, Mr. Pink, where are the kids? And he said, well, they're out over under building such and such. So I'd go over there and I'd say, and boy, they'd scamper when they saw me coming. And they'd go back in his class to endure Mr. Pink, who wasn't exactly gifted in that area. Uh, but it was that kind of situation. I remember chasing a kid. I was out roving the neighborhood looking for truants, and I saw a kid, and I ground to a stop in my car and dashed out of the car and chased him. I chased him right through his front door, and I ran right into the middle of a dope den. There I stood, and they're all sitting around. This kid's hiding behind his, his father, I guess, and they're all looking at me, and I said, sorry to interrupt your party, and I walked out. I mean, you know, no sense. Uh, but I said to him before I I want that youngster back in class this afternoon or the police will be here. And he was. <laughs> oh, there's so many war stories, quote war stories, I could tell you that happened there that are just fascinating, but they all have an impact in how you can be salt in the marketplace as a missionary in the marketplace. And, and over and over you see opportunity after opportunity, wherever you are. Well, from there I, and by the way, I remember breaking up a, or having a high schoolers come to the school and one of them threw a rock about this big and just missed my head. It was that kind of thing too. They'd sweep through the school with all kinds of stuff. Well, from there I became a principal and I was assigned to one of the largest elementary schools in the United States. It had 1,800 plus students. Uh, the, the staff was almost all uh, union, and they were very hard to deal with, but we had a great time going there. I used to have my Bible on my desk at that school, and every morning I left my... I always had an open door, uh, unless I was counseling someone, but I would always start the day by reading my Bible, and the teachers knew that, and the parents knew that. And uh, it was always... It would almost be like it was a ritual for them. Whenever they'd come in, they'd mention the Bible... Because it was there. And it just opened up more opportunities for me to talk to people about those things. A number of the teachers responded to Christ. The students, I think, and some of them still make contact with me. And that was almost 30 years ago. 
with, and they still make contact. The next school, I was promised if I took this school and endured it for three years, they would give me my own school that I could build myself. And so I was in on designing my own school. It was the first air-conditioned school in Los Angeles City. And I had the chance to design it. Yeah, remembering back, you know. And uh, it was great. The school was 10 minutes from my home. Um, it was a great school, a large Jewish population. We always had our little battle around Christmas, but, but we had an understanding. When it was Hanukkah, we talk about Hanukkah. Uh, if it was Tet New Year, the, the, the Oriental time, the, the kids would talk, they'd share their faith rather than hiding it. And so it was an open exchange of the faith in that school. And, and the, the Jewish people, even though they were reluctant, we still had our Christmas programs along with the other uh, celebrations. And it was a great way for me to witness in that regard. Um, as I say, the school was 10 minutes from my home. Uh, two of the PTA presidents there received Christ with the old Bible on the desk and opening up opportunities and just talking to them at other times. Um, in fact, tomorrow I'm performing the wedding ceremony from one of the students who was there uh, when he was in first grade in kindergarten. Uh, so we're still keeping contact in that place. It was out in Chatsworth, and we had a big fire back in 71. We had to evacuate the whole school. And I can still remember the controversy. The wind was blowing about 70 miles an hour, and all the hills got fire up there, and the hallways were filled with smoke. You couldn't even see in the hallways. And we had frantic, hysterical parents running up and down the hallways, screaming for their children, trying to get them out. And, of course, we had everything under control. I got buses in, and... And uh, we got the kids loaded on the buses, and then the bus drivers sat there. And I had a whole school full of kids yet. And uh, so I went out to the bus driver, and I said, why aren't you leaving? And he said, well, I just got a call from security, and they don't want me to leave until they get here. And I said, either you're going to drive this bus out of here, or I'm going to drive this bus out of here, but it's going. I said, i got too many kids in here. And so after the aftermath of all this was that the whole Los Angeles City school system formed a new policy that whenever there was an emergency, the principal was in charge and not some security agent who wasn't even there. And out of this came a number of things. Um, the thing that happened to me at that school, we had a public meeting in which all the PTA presidents and public people were there. And uh, the principals were all sitting around the superintendent in chairs, and I was there, and I happened to be on the end, and uh, the superintendent was pleading for a tax override, and uh, I thought it was an unfair thing, and so I got up and challenged the superintendent, which isn't the smartest thing to do, believe me, in an open meeting, and uh, uh, he was telling them, what he was telling them is if they didn't get out and work for this tax override, that the cuts that would occur in the schools would be very damaging to education. And my question was, well, if you're going to cut out here, what cuts are you making downtown where you are? I said, why do you cut out where education is taking place? Why don't you cut down there where it isn't taking place? And, of course, he didn't exactly like that. And uh, the next day I got a phone call that I was being transferred to an inner city school 30 miles from my home, uh, all freeway down in the near Watts area. Well, I'd just gotten my assignment to this new school, and uh, knowing that it was a disciplinary thing or a get-even kind of thing, um, and I got a phone call. I just heard about it, and I got this phone call, and this big, deep voice says, Is you Dr. Balshaw? 
And I said, yes, I am. He says, is you the new principal at such and such a school? And I said, well, uh, yeah, but how'd you know? I just found out. And he said, well, I, I'm chairman of the community advisory council. And he said, there's just one thing we want you to know, Dr. Barshaw. And I said, what's that? He said, we don't want no white man here. And that was my introduction to that school. Well, I spent the whole summer with those folks. And I'll tell you the end of that little story in a couple minutes. But I remember my first day there. It was before the kids got there. It was my first day at this school. And uh, as a principal, I'd spent the whole summer there uh, just meeting with parents and teachers. All the teachers had gone out on strike that year before I got there. Um, the first day, I was sitting in my office trying to adjust to things, and in came the custodian. And he was really screaming, and he had this huge cut under his eye, and, and, and he was trying to tell me, and I was trying to understand what he was saying, but what I finally gleaned out of the whole thing was that someone had shot at the school, and the, the bullet had just missed him, but the glass had cut his eye. And I got angry. I thought, what is going on? So I marched out the front door in the direction he gave me, and here are all these teenagers standing there with a rifle. And I get about halfway there, and suddenly... It dawned on me that my name should be changed to stupid. You know, I mean, what are you doing here? So I was too late then. They're all staying there watching me approach them. And I approached them and I, I said, hey, guys, uh, did you just shoot at the school? Yeah, we just shot at the school. I said, well, um, your bullet just missed my custodian and, and the glass cut his eye. Yeah, so what? And I said, well... I just think you guys are begging for trouble, not from me, but from other sources. Can you shoot at something else? <laughs> you know, big, brave kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, we guess so. I said, thanks. And I turned around. It was the longest walk I've ever taken. <laughs> Walking back to the school, because I had visions of what was going on behind me, of course. Well, I had we during that time there, we had... Uh, Kids had come running the office, and there was a big shootout down at the corner around the liquor store. It was it was sort of a different world, so to speak. They stole cars off our parking lot. There was all kinds of stuff going on. Teachers would send their whole classes down to the office for discipline. <laughs> I had two vice principals, and the poor guys couldn't do anything else. We had to do a lot of confronting and so on. But within a year, as, as Russ indicated... The school had turned around. The, the whole thing had changed. And mainly because, because the Lord was in it, I started having classes with the teachers on creation science and that sort of thing. And, and they really were good teachers. They just needed a chance to exercise outside of the turmoil. Every Tuesday morning, we used to have a black pastor's class. All the black pastors from the whole surrounding neighborhood would come in and uh, it had been set up because these were dear men. They loved the word, but they hadn't been taught. And they asked me to teach them. So we had the most precious times. And the teachers would start attending these things. The whole tenor of the school turned around because it had a God orientation. Even the ones who didn't want to have a God orientation started having that. Uh, a number of the teachers received Christ. One of them now is teaching at, at Grace Church. Uh, and now I can remember my last day there after two years. Mr. Avery, the man who first talked to me on the phone and said, we don't want no white man here, had gone to the city council and gotten a special award from the city council for me. 
And he came in to bid me goodbye because I was going to come to Grace Church on staff in that last day. And uh, we were getting, bidding goodbye. And he said, uh, I'm going to miss you. And I said, you know, Earl, I said, do you remember the first words you ever said to me? And he said, yeah. <laughs> he said, but you know, Dr. Barshaw, you know why I said that? I said, no, Earl, why'd you say that? He says, because I didn't think a white man could care. I didn't think a white man could care. You see, the school was 97% black, 1,500 students in a ghetto. And we had a delightful time there. I think it was one of the best experiences I ever had. Great teachers, wonderful students. I could tell you story after story out of that. Marvelous things that happened. But I want to finish up our time together because I think in order for you to be a missionary in the marketplace or a minister on a church staff, wherever it is, it's going to be full-time ministry if you have the right perspective. Wherever it is, you must maintain five perspectives. And I want to give them to you very rapidly. But these are essential Ways to look at things if you're going to be in full-time ministry wherever you are. First of all, as a Christian, you must understand and perceive of yourself as a stranger and a pilgrim on earth. This earth is not your home. This is not your home. Don't get comfortable here. It's not your home. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Philippians 3.20 says this, So our citizenship is in heaven. You're not a citizen here. Let me give you an, a truism. A truism. The more you mature in the faith, the more at home your heart is going to feel in heaven and less at home on earth. You got that? The more you mature in the faith and the more dedicated you are to God, your heart is going to find and feel more at home in heaven than it does on earth. You see, the immature Christian feels at home here. We shouldn't feel at home. This is not our home. We're strangers and pilgrims here. Second point, not only are you a pilgrim and a stranger, you're a citizen of heaven, but you're a child of light and you're no longer a child of darkness. Philippians, Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were formerly darkness. That's where you came from. But now you're light in the Lord and walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And with that understanding, it takes us to number three, perspective. Because you're a child of light, you are now an underground agent of light in Satan's world of darkness. And don't ever think of yourself in a different way. You're an underground agent of light in Satan's world of darkness. And because you're an agent of light, there is no darkness so deep or so dense that it will not flee from your presence when you discard the covering of the flesh. And let the mirror of your soul reflect the person of Christ in the fruit of the Spirit. There is no darkness that can withstand you when you allow the reflected love of Christ to be manifest through you. And that's a part of being a missionary in the marketplace. 
A fourth thing. A fourth perspective. God has equipped every one of you underground agents with two light projectors and protectors. Two things that make you as an agent absolutely invincible to the forces of darkness. I want you to understand this. First of all, first part of your equipment, you have a sharp two-edged sword called the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 describes this sword this way. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What a weapon! I remember the story of the man in England who was traveling on a train. And, and the man across from him recognized that he was a minister. And he kept attacking the Bible and attacking God. And this minister kept replying with just one verse. Just one verse. It is given men once to die and then the judgment. And no matter what the man said to him, he just simply used the one verse as a sword to penetrate. He didn't argue. He just kept parroting back that verse. A number of years later, as he was preaching in a church, a man approached him and said, You won't remember me. But I'm the man that attacked you on the train, and all you ever did was answer with a scripture. And he said, it so penetrated my heart and so convicted me that soon after I became a believer, and I want you to know I'm active in the faith, because you used the sword of the Lord. What a weapon to defeat the darkness. Ephesians 6.17 tells God's agents of light to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there's a second thing that you have as an underground agent of light in this world of darkness. It's a power and a wisdom which enables you as an agent of light to wield the sword of the Word with strength and skill. You can't do it on your own, but you can with this other agent working inside of you who is called the Holy Spirit. He enables you to wield the sword of the Spirit appropriately in every situation and with power and wisdom. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He is the one. You have two enablers, a word and the Spirit. Now finally, and hopefully we'll get off right on time here, a fifth perspective to keep in mind. The world is your battle, battlefield. The place where you're called to do battle with the powers of darkness. The agents of evil who will fight to make you ineffective and to keep you from winning any of its children to the light. Especially in the marketplace. With tough bosses and unfair people and situations which you find hard to cope. They're all simply tactics of the evil one. There is no portion of this world which is not under the influence of the darkness. There are no behind-the-line positions, gang. There's no place you can go that isn't in the front line, really, in this war. There are only soldiers of light who are AWOL or in retreat or refusing to fight. There's no place or time for R&R, rest and recovery from the battle. There isn't any such place. For the present, we must dwell and struggle in the kingdom of darkness and must see ourselves as the light brigade invading the domain of darkness. 
We must not think defensively or be afraid. We are to think offensively. We're to go after and cause the darkness to flee. There are no insignificant skirmishes or less important battle arenas, for the same darkness must be defeated and dispelled everywhere. And either you're in the battle or you're not. It's that simple. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. There's no leave of absence granted to true agents of light. The moment we receive Christ, the darkness targets us as the enemy and seeks to cut off and cover our light with evil through temptation and tribulation. But he who is in the world, or he who is in you, is greater and stronger than he who is in the world. That's your promise. Therefore, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Thank you for the time. Russ?